interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is The Carrie Edelman Show. Welcome to The Carrie Edelman Show. I am beyond ecstatic today as we have the award-winning illustrator, writer, and cartoonist, Bob Eckstein coming on momentarily. So before I bring him on, just want to do a brief introduction to my show. He's going to be one of the amazing talents that I've had the honor and pleasure of interviewing. And some of them have included the head writer for Seinfeld, Peter Melman, New York Times bestselling author, Jennifer Kishin Armstrong, award-winning journalist and author, Mike Sager, comedian, John D. Domenico, and world-renowned mastering engineer, Mayar Applebaum. So that's just to name a few. Um, I created this show, gosh, I can't even believe it. It's, it's been probably almost eight years ago now because I really wanted to bring people on in the entertainment industry, creative individuals to help them promote their products and also really hone in on a, a unique interview that brings you into their life and their history. Um, so if you're tuning in, create a Blog Talk Radio account by going to blogtalkradio.com. And also a little bit about my background. I always throw this out there. I do have a background in psychology, but my show is purely an entertainment show. Um, I'm not going to be doing any therapy or assessment, but we do from time to time, if it's applicable, talk about psychological concepts um, in an educational manner if they come up. So let's do a nice introduction for Bob, and then we're going to bring him on. As I mentioned, he's an award-winning illustrator, cartoonist, and writer. He creates cartoons for places like the New York Times, Mad Magazine, The New Yorker, and many others, uh, just to name a few. He wrote The History of the Snowman, which is really interesting. We'll get into that a little bit today. And an award-winning New York Times bestseller book, Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores. Bob has been nominated as a gag cartoonist of the year twice by the National Cartoonist Society. He's written columns, audits, features for New Yorker, New York Times, Reader's Digest, Spy, Playboy, etc. Um, today, we're going to also be promoting his two new books. They include All's Fair and Love and War. It's an ultimate cartoon book by the world's greatest cartoonist. And also The Elements of Stress, which he uh, co-wrote with New York cartoonist Michael Shaw. Also, Bob recently started a new podcast called The Cartoon Pad, and you can also check that out, which he also co-leads with uh, Michael Shaw. So for more information, check out Bob by going to bobextein.com, and we're going to now bring him on. How are you, Bob? Hey, Carrie. Great introduction. Thank you. You're welcome. You uh, absolutely deserve it and more. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> So, uh, so how are you doing? How have you been? I mean, I'm sure, again, we've been in some challenging times, as you know, with this whole pandemic. And uh, you definitely have some great cartoons to, uh, to capture. Not that we want to say humor, but I think humor, at least for me personally, um, I do use it in times of distress. I think it, it definitely helps me, and I'm sure you can uh, relate to that. So how have you been making out during this really challenging year we've had? And then we'll get into, of course, talking about you and, and your background. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I did take it upon myself to try to do, um, try to help out and try to create some humor and trying to lighten the load. And so I did about 15 about the pandemic, and I wrote articles about this whole past year, and that, that's what people wanted. Publications wanted their readership to be, you know, sort of uh, have a little bit of levity. And then at some point, I also decided to write with my friend a book about the whole subject, 
and try to manage stress. And we did it as a parody of the element of style, which many writers kind of grew up on. It's like mm-hmm. a book we all get in college. And so we, we decided to do a parody of that. But so the pandemic has really changed our focus. I'm trying to be as productive as could be, but it definitely rocked my world. My work, everything changed. I had speaking engagements. I had all these different things I had planned that were canceled. Um, oh. But I want to mention, too, that I feel very blessed that I was not very sick. Uh, no one in my immediate family passed away from COVID. Um, I did get COVID, even though I was super careful. And I wow. still don't understand how it could have happened. But, I, you know, I feel very fortunate that I wasn't hospitalized. And um, I just tried to encourage people to be very careful and, and share my story that you can get it when you least expect it. Yeah, it's just, I think, and I think that's a great point. Like you said, even if, and we could talk off the air, I'm not going to talk about myself personally on the air, but with the environment I work in, it's, you know, it's just a recipe for potential disaster because of the containment and lots of people and not a lot of ventilation. So as you said, I mean, even if you're being so careful, which is so scary about this virus, and I don't think that, you know, we won't get into too much, but, you know, I don't think people have realized just how contagious it is. And like you said, it might have been the most benign way that you caught it. And even if you figured it out, it probably still would have been just mind-blowing how you got it. Yeah, it's such a sensitive subject, too, because, like, I have friends who, you know, are not careful at all. And I would try to tell them, you know, whatever. And somehow they managed not to get sick when God bless them. But it's just such a, a crazy, everything is crazy. The whole right. past year has been so unpredictable. And we can get into this as much as you want, because I know you have this disclaimer on the show. Um, <laughs> but I need help. I, I, yeah, I'm all game for anything. And I feel okay. like, uh, as a fan of the show, I kind of know you. I feel like I know you well now. Aww. So I feel like uh, I'm ready for some help. And I'll pay. Okay. Well, I'll pay for the session. Like I said, we can we can absolutely talk off the air. Um, I, you know, I really want this focus to be on on you, your story. I mean, you just, you know, the more research I delved in, which is learning about you, I don't even think we're going to get to the. I don't know what the right word is, but I think I could do probably three or four interviews with you, and maybe still not cover everything I want to. So we'll get to as much as we can today, and we can always, you know, you're always welcome back on again. So and thank you for that kind remark of of being a fan. I've worked really hard on this show and it's kind of a very grassroots approach where I've kind of built it up from the ground by myself. So I really do appreciate yeah, yeah. that. Thank oh, no, you. you. Great guests. And I've been really enjoying the shows, um, especially the ones that pertain to my profession of, of mm-hmm. comedy. You've already mentioned at the top of the show, Peter Melman. And I recommend that to my comedy friends to, to go back and listen to that one. That's a good one. And, um, no, I, you definitely can help me. I mean, I'll just sum it up in a sentence. I'm an erotic. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> well, you know, all uh, the stories lead go back to that. I just have, you know, this crazy uh, desires to uh, write things and to try to fit in and to get validation, and it's all, you know, it's all about that. Love okay. Well, I, and I read the I read a little bit about you with that, and I was going to ask about that a little bit. So let's let's do this right now. Let's. I'm glad to hear again that you are healthy and you recovered well from COVID. And, and one thing too, and we, again, we're not going to delve into this on the show, but, you know, be mindful that these quote unquote friends of yours that allegedly didn't get it. How did you know they were not maybe asymptomatic? 
you know, you, you had this whole group of people out there that potentially had it and just didn't even know it. I know. There's been good news this morning. Um, they were announcing on the news that the vaccines seem to be really effective to the variants that are appearing from other ways. So that's, that's really great. Good. That's great. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So let's, let's talk about Bob. Um, yeah. Again, I think what was so interesting and, and, you know, it really hits home for me. I mean, I'm passionate about, I did some drawing again, I'm not a artist by any means. I wouldn't call myself that, but you clearly encapsulate everything that I love, which is, you know, art and illustration, writing, and definitely having a sense of humor, which, as I mentioned, comedy is a huge coping mechanism for me. So reflecting back, like when you were really young and, you know, as young as you can recall, four, five, six years old, you know, what would you say maybe yeah. out of those three things was the first thing you noticed about yourself? Was it you like to just doodle and draw? Were you being funny and trying to, like you said, get people's attention? Talk a little bit about that as we start to develop your story. Well, it's not a black and white answer because it's kind of like very fuzzy that different skills developing, um, there are benchmarks that I could point to, but mm -hmm. I can't say that I was so sure that I was like always sure I wanted to be an artist or something like that. As a matter of fact, I think all boys at some point want to be a football player or something like a rock star and the obvious sort of cliches before you start finding really what you're passionate about. But I would say that I was more interested in trying to be funny because my grandmother was the most popular figure in my family. She was sort of the center. Okay. I called it the Mad About You Syndrome because that show, I like the show, but Mad About You had pretty selfish, self-centered, central <laughs> characters. that right. we thought the whole world revolved around uh, them. And that kind of bothered me. But there's always that in the family. And in my case, my grandmother, who was voted class clown in school, she was always the funniest. And I could see really young that because she was funny, everyone loved her. Everyone gravitated around her universe. So when I was like four or five, I would start making jokes. I remember the jokes. I mean, I couldn't even talk. And people in my family all assumed, and rightfully so, that there was something wrong with me. Because I had not spoken a word until I was five. Really? And I was brought to doctors wondering why. But that didn't keep me from doing some good mime jokes. And one of my favorite things, and remember, this is one of the early jokes, so it's not going to be good. I'm just honing my skills. Sure. But I would love to be sitting down like on a couch with the family gathering and pretending I was falling down. And if people came <laughs> to sit me back up, I would, I would stop. And stop right. falling. And then they would walk away, and then I would continue falling. And uh, I have to tell you, I'm a big fan of Buster Keaton today, and uh, he used to do that sort of thing. And then I graduate to more sophisticated jokes, like I might walk in the poker group. That was the big family ga gathering. Once a week, the family would all get together to play penny poker, and all the aunts and uncles and all the cousins would be in one home. And I would come in with a vacuum cleaner. And I was like six or seven saying, where's the bugs? And I was doing a little exterminator joke. So I'm still feeling out my audience, trying to read the room. But uh, certainly that would be something that came before my drawing and doodles. And like so many other artists, I did read the comics. Uh, I was a huge fan, but I read Peanuts. 
and would mm-hmm. copy drawing Snoopy and Charlie Brown and doing different things like that. But in my case, I, I did do one thing that really um, is shown in my work today, and that is my hand-eye coordination that I practice by taking plastic army men. And I used to take oil paint and paint on these army men hockey uniforms and football uniforms. Wow. In immaculate detail with oh a fine gosh. brush as a little kid. And I got very good at this sort of thing. I mean, I was a, a pretty realistic painter by the time I was in junior high. And it was because of that early training. And I like to joke, it's sort of like an anti-military statement I was making. So it's sort of editorializing plastic arms. Right. That's very interesting. Into, uh, athletes. And I did think that. I was thinking that, I mean, I was anti-guns. And I really remember not liking the 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 pageantry of, of war and changing everything to this comical thing. No, really right, and not. I was and, no, and real quick, I was just referring to, I mean, it was interesting that you're taking these figures and you're able to re, I mean, were you doing this just by looking at something when you're talking about taking the oil paints and like, you know, meticulously very detailed being I mean, that's just fascinating that you were just doing it on your own or did you have some type of guidance? Well, I had a friend I had a friend who, uh, Joe Pallister, who's an actor now, you would know him from TV. He's on the blacklist and flight attendant and never shows. And he wow. was my best friend growing up. And he was very artistic. And he introduced me to Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me to all these kooky little things. And one of them was painting these army men. So I had an influence in him. Okay. And, uh, I mean, we had each other. And that was it. We grew up in the projects uh, in the South Bronx in a, in a very tough neighborhood. Uh, we were not allowed to go out. It was unsafe for any kids to be outside. You know, at this time, it was, it was a whole different thing. I mean, it was, you know, we didn't have video games. We didn't have a lot of different things. We had no right. place to play sports. There was no tree, nothing. And outside, there was gangs with knives and stuff like that. You really was unsafe for a, oh a kid to be playing outside. So we preoccupied ourselves with this sort of thing. And uh, he was very funny, too. I, I had not kept in touch with him, but uh, 40 years passed, and we reconnected on Facebook. Oh, nice. The miracle of Facebook. Right, right. That's, yeah, that's, I, I I mean, recently, that's fascinating. Go ahead. It is, it is funny how you could reconnect like that. I reconnected with someone who I was not friends with in school, in high school, uh, who was a class clown. I was not the class clown or class artist or anything like that. I was unpopular. I think I just went under the radar. I did not go my senior year. I didn't finish. I was already sitting in on college classes. But there was a class clown. And uh, a gentle soul of a guy now, um, his name was Larry Rupp, and I admired him. He was very funny. Um, mm-hmm. and I really liked his stuff. I learned now he's in Las Vegas, and I'm kind of fun that I'm going to connect and, and let him know that I'm doing a piece about Las Vegas right now for the humor magazine America Bystander. The America okay. Bystander is this new humor magazine, and they're giving me this huge feature to do about Las Vegas and how much I miss it. Oh, that's awesome. And what and this feature that you're doing about Las Vegas, What's the? can you go into a little detail, just a sentence or two of what the crux of it is? 
Yeah, I just felt that it'd be fun to do a piece about where we want to go first after the pandemic. Where do we miss most? Right. And it's embarrassing to say, but uh, my comedy kings are George Carlin, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Handy, um, who I've had the opportunity to do work on his last book with him. And the third person is, is Carrot Top. And nice. I'm sorry, I go I go to see him once a year. <laughs> That's awesome. Don't think that's of great. And we could talk about this in another session, but right, okay, uh, you know. And what is um yeah. the friends you reconnected <laughs> with? That was the class clown. If you, it, I mean, can you mention anything about like what is he doing today? Is he involved in comedy or entertainment in any aspect? You know, I have a lot of friends who are professional comedians. We get together frequently. Of course, not now, but once the pandemic's over, I have a regular group. That we meet in my office, an informal office in Chinatown in New York City. There's this restaurant that I try to hold court one day every two weeks. And people come by of all walks of life, different people in comedy business, stand-ups, actors, whatever, all friends. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've all noted is that looking back growing up, that the funniest guy in the group, the person who we thought was the funniest person among our friends, is the person who's not in the business anymore and mm-hmm. does not have anything to do with, at all. Not even like a rodeo clown. They're not even like, in, they're like, you know, postal men, they're retired, they're accountants. Right. And it's, and, you know, just because, I mean, I'm in the business. I do not consider myself the funniest person in my circle. I didn't consider myself the funniest person ever growing up or any time. But uh, it's what I wanted to do. So, I collected people who I thought were the funniest people, and I learned from them. I let them inspire me, mm-hmm. and I let them make me laugh. Well, and again, I think, you know, and I know this has been a theme, as you said in the beginning, just with being neurotic and, like you said, just kind of always seeking that, that affirmation and stuff like that. And I hope you agree on some level. I think you don't give yourself credit, Bob. Your stuff is like I said, I mean, I was literally laughing out loud. And when we get into talking about your cartoon books and just the stuff that you've done, it's, it's fantastic. So I know what you're saying. You're you're probably your own worst critic, so to speak. I think, you know, some of us are like that. I'm personally like that too. It doesn't matter what I accomplish. It's still like, "Eh, it's not enough. I didn't get there yet. So I can totally empathize with where you're coming from that, but please know that you are beyond successful and what you've accomplished is just outstanding. So, but oh, no, I can appreciate please. what you're saying. No, please, please continue. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no. You know, it's funny. You should say that we're our worst critics. It was Bob Mankoff, who was a former boss of mine. Mm-hmm. I was bringing my cartoons to him to try to get in the New Yorker magazine. And it was a special relationship because uh, the New Yorker, except a small amount. It's a small fraction of what you bring in to submit that they buy. Okay. So he's like my audience of one. He has seen thousands of my cartoons that no one else has seen. He's the only person who has seen my whole body of work. Okay. Um, so it's a weird thing. And he had a sort of little podcast and he said something a couple of days ago that the more critical a person is of their work, the more professional he feels that person is. If, the comedians nice. and stand-ups who say, oh, I'm finished. I've 
don't have more, more to learn. Mm-hmm. I don't have places to go. And I'm really great, who are usually the hacks. And so people who kind of always themselves up, like let's say a Larry David <laughs> or someone, who, who's a comic who's constantly saying, oh, I'm not good. And, and I feel that way every time myself because I'm, I know that. I know that if, I, if I'm complacent, then I am right. a hack. And if I'm going to get better, and, and I do enjoy learning. Every day I try to learn something. I soak in classes and stuff like that, and I have been taking classes for writing on the side, and I'm also teaching writing. Right. And I just feel like it's a great balance. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think, yeah, if you get complacent, or, you know, we're not going to get into too much. We can do that another time. But I think, you know, the personality characteristics of the individual, too, you know, that I don't, you don't come across as this very – narcissistic kind of self-centered selfish individual and i think i'm not i'm not i'm saying this in more general terms but i think those characteristics also sometimes dictate you know like you said hey i've already accomplished what i need to i'm I'm here i don't need to do anything else versus us kind of more self-deprecating people who are like okay i want to learn something new or this isn't really fully developed yet and i can still you know continue with this and, and make it better and that's how i am too I mean, even being yeah, in my I profession, mean, as long as I've been in it, every day at work, I'm saying, huh, what can I do differently? Or, oh, wow, I didn't notice that. I can really, you know, revamp that or, or maybe hone in more on that when I do my assessments. So I know exactly what you're referring to. I, I know you want to bring yourself into it, but let me ask you a question that, for my sake, and that is I started a podcast and I'm I feel like the first episodes I can't even listen to because I know they weren't that good and I got better. And do you feel like in the podcast too, you feel like you always could do better and you're kind Absolutely. of looking back at the first ones and you say, Oh, at least I got better. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Are you asking me that personally? If I feel like when I look you back know, at my first one versus like, today? Yeah. We're just talking shop now about like, since yeah. now I'm a podcaster, we're both in showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> I had a funny letter I want to share. I, I wasn't going to bring this up. I just thought of it now that okay. I invited somebody on the show who's a pretty big name. All all the people in on, on my show are known in the cartoon community and probably not known outside of it. But this is a big name in the cartoonist world. Right. And he said, I'm really sorry I'm going to have to decline. But I have this thing about showbiz. I've decided that I'm against showbiz, and I can't accept this because I am not. I don't want to enter the world of showbiz, which is quite flattering for a podcast that just began. But wait, um, and maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not fully understanding it. But would it, I mean you're offering him an interview to come on and promote him? Correct. You're not. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to soil himself with the Hollywood sig- stigma. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I mean, yeah. I guess you can look at it from different perspectives, but that, yeah, that's very interesting. So what was your, I mean, were you were flattered or were you also on some level kind of disappointed that here I am wanting to promote this individual? You know, as a person who's trying to write funny stuff and trying to write a joke and cartoons, and then people are sending me stuff every day. All people I know and don't know are constantly sending me jokes. I don't laugh much. I do not find much funny. Right. That letter made me laugh. That letter, <laughs> that letter gave me a good laugh. So That's I just sort for that. 
and I really respect everyone's take on it because you never know where person's coming from. I right. like if I don't get a response from someone, I realize you know what they might be going through a family crisis or something, or they could be like being attacked by a bear. Right. And, no, and by good, the way, I, I just bring point. that up. Because, yeah, I bring that up because I have a bear problem in my house, and <laughs> there have been times in which a phone rings. And someone says, well, you know, I tried to reach you and stuff. Well, you don't know that there's a bear running around my house oh, with my feeders. And, yeah. So, you don't so know. where, and if you don't mind me asking, because I have seen some of your posts, where are you currently, are, you're in New York right now? Well, I usually live in New York City. Um, okay. And I, and I swore I wouldn't stay there because I've always lived in bad neighborhoods. And I, I really wanted to stop dealing with crime and stuff. But I said, if I ever did live in New York City, I would live next to the cloisters. And fortunately enough, I have an apartment near the cloisters, which is in the northern part of Manhattan, next to the Metropolitan Museum. And it's a really beautiful place next to the George Washington Bridge. Now, I since uh, the pandemic, we are out in a little cabin in Pennsylvania in the woods, in a remote part in northern eastern Pennsylvania. And it was a fixer-upper that we picked up like 20 years ago when um, my wife and I were married. And we did a lot of the work ourselves, and it's a real labor of love. And it's a real special place because, you know, it's got our, you know, our handprint on everything. We did the plumbing, the electricity, wow. the, the everything. And it's a really lovely spot. And you have bears, unfortunately, in the backyard sometimes. Well, we have bears. We have chickens. There's fox. <laughs> there's turkeys. There's deer. There's wow. everything. It's a zoo. It's a zoo. <laughs> and I have to blame my wife because she loves the birds, and she, she feeds the birds, and it, it attracts everything. Gotcha, and this is gotcha. like the one thing we argue over. It's the one thing we argue over, <laughs> like putting out the feeders. Oh. <laughs> Well, but it sounds like if it sounds like a really beautiful place, and it sounds pretty like like you said, pretty serene, and just sure it's a great place to write and be able to just kind of collect your thoughts. Yeah, in the beginning we had everyone visit. Everybody would pass by the neighbors, and the house is kind of a, a neat house. There's actually someone just posted a, a little YouTube movie about the house. I give a tour, and it's been on TV multiple times, and it's it was like selected runner-up for Home of the Year, uh, Metropolitan Home, a uh, year oh, ago. Oh, neat. So it's got, a, it's got a lot of press. It's been in magazines because it's unusual. It's got all these right. trap doors and paths in the house. It has – my office was selected top coolest office, top ten mm-hmm. coolest offices in the world. I regutted an attic to be a replica of the inside of a ship so I could do this one book that was going to be about a ship. So I, want I to saw that. Mood. I, I saw that yeah. office. It's fascinating. Yeah. Now continue. I just want to mention. I did see it. It's 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 great. So because we get so many people dropping by and thinking it's okay, because uh, yeah. in this area people are kind of laid back and no one's really. Well, I'll just say it. People are not working. <laughs> They're just <laughs> not doing anything. So what I did was I built a, a section for myself to work, but no one could find me on the roof of my house. And I, it's, I constructed a bench and a work area that's actually on the roof of the house that I get to by climbing a ladder. 
and it's behind oh the house. And it overlooks a little waterfalls. And there I can't really, you know, get in front of a computer or anything. So I, I get rid of the distractions, which is, I think, very important. Mm-hmm. Neat. I'm really, that sounds I'm really, really big interesting. Into I'm, I'm big into how do you create the best atmosphere for a person to bring out their best work? When I teach, uh, I, I teach uh, classes in a couple of places, including NYU. And I try to encourage my students to find out how they work their best. And one of the things someone else taught me was to build a path in the woods or find a quiet place, even if you're in an urban setting, to find a chair or someplace in which you're, you're isolated. And then you could try to hear the thoughts that are collecting in the back of your head, which right now is so hard with all the different distractions with, with apps and podcasts and and, and me talking to you, <laughs> all these things that are keeping a person from listening to themselves. Right. But that sounds, but that sounds like a great, like, and I've, I've read that stuff about writers too. It's right. Finding that spot, right. That, that you can feel comfortable in and really let yourself get creative and block out the quote, no pun intended noise, so to speak. So no, that's a, yeah. that's a great suggestion. I, I don't think there's like any right way, but there's a right mm-hmm. way for each person. Everyone has a different method that brings out their best voice and they can find their own like style and stuff. And, um, you know, this is something I think that I learned a lot from the comedian, John Cleese, who gave seminars on how to find yourself um, in these moments of discomfort. He calls them when you can't quite figure out where you want to go, make a decision, maybe on a, on a, piece and material or whatever mm-hmm. but you have to learn to find your way out of that and embrace the fact of the unknown of what you will come up with creatively that you don't just go to the first easy answer and the cliche you don't embrace something as what they call in comedy the, the low-hanging fruit but instead you're looking for the more original innovative solution to a problem right and I think, and as we get into it, I think that's what you really illustrate, no pun intended, not saying, just saying illustration, because you're sure. such a, a talented drawer and um, illustrator. But, you know, in the books and the things that you've chosen to do, I mean, they're really unique things that no one else is doing. And that's what, I mean, that's something I really love about you. And that's something I just love about life is trying to do something different and maybe take, like you said, that different path. Um, and not just, I mean, I, not to get into on the show too much, but I do some songwriting and things like that. And I know when I was composing my music, it really, you know, you could hear elements of, of rock and pop and stuff like that. But I think a hard thing was it didn't fit into some cliche thing. And that was difficult for someone when you're not known. You know what I mean? If you're a known mm. musician and then you try to do something different, people might be more willing to accept you. But, and So I would struggle with that. Well, do I have to make it more this way so that it's more marketable and more rate? You know what I mean? So, but I know what you're saying with what you do. I think I really appreciate, like you said, just taking that really unique approach, your cartoon books, um, the snowman book we'll we'll get into. That's all really different stuff. But at the same time, you're touching on something that I think is important too. If I'm creating a cartoon or a piece, there has to be an element that there's, it's familiar with the viewer sure. or the listener, in your case, writing a song because they're, that's how you make a connection and you draw them in. This is why like cartoon tropes are so popular. When you see a desert island or the Grim Reaper, there's a sort of uh, calm there. 
because you do have to gain the readership's confidence and mm-hmm. make them feel comfortable. In the same way, when you go on stage, you don't want to come across totally cocky and put off the right. audience. But if you don't have that confidence a little bit, the audience is uneasy and unsure what you're going to do, and they have that same anxiety that you're experiencing. So in, even in, in a song or a piece right. of, uh, let's say, personal essay, there's going to be like sort of a something that says to the reader, oh, I'm in a comfortable place. I'm safe here, and now I can laugh. I feel comfortable letting myself open up to laughter. Right. No, that's a great point. I think that's a great analogy and a great point. Absolutely. So let's do this a little. I want to pull in a little bit of other stuff before we start to get into your um, your books and everything. So just going back again to a little kid, tell me a little bit about, like you said, your grandma was funny. Was this on your, your dad's side or your mom's side, the grandma? This was on my mom's side. Okay. And uh, my family was uh, instrumental to me trying to be funny because they were tough audience at dinner time, And that was the only time that, you know, basically you try to – work out some material is <laughs> around dinner time. You try to make right. that really tough four people laugh, a, a brother and a sister and two parents that didn't necessarily think I was that funny. Okay. Things have changed over the years, but it was a stretch that it was not easy. And where were, and you answered a couple of questions already, because I was going to ask if you had any siblings, where were you in the birth order? Are you middle, youngest, oldest? All right, now I'm going to start to cry. No, no, because I just want to – I'm going to ask you a little – and you, I'll throw the question yeah. out there now. If you feel comfortable, you know, what do they do for a living? Are, are they also involved in any aspect of, of creative work or entertainment? So, and then go from there with whatever you want to share. Uh, my brother is in the entertainment business. He's a lawyer. Oh. And my sister is a CPO or CPA. CPA, no oh, okay. big difference, sorry. Uh-huh. And uh, they're not in the business. I was the oldest one. And the reason why I said, oh, I'm going to cry now is because uh, this brings up issues that I still tackle now, which is, did I do enough for them? Did I protect them enough? I mean, they're still living, so I give myself some, some credit for that. Some, <laughs> okay. I get credit for that. But at the same time, you always feel like so responsible for everything that's happened to them. Um, anything that bad might happen, I feel like as the older brother, like, what should I have done? And I'm taking on that responsibility now as an uncle, you know, what should I be teaching? You know, Mm -hmm. what should I not be doing and stuff, you know? And I I tell you, it all goes back to validation too. It's like, am I getting everyone's approval? Am I doing a good job? Where's that survey going out? You know? Right. (laughs) It does feel like everything now is a survey. I cannot go buy a stamp without having to be asked how the service was. It's like amazing. And I feel the same way in my real life. I, I haven't done surveys, but I'm doing a newsletter, which is only one step away. Okay. So I'm sorry, you said the newsletter, is it regarding surveys or something? Well, I do a free newsletter and it's sort of just fun stuff. And the reason for that is because this business has changed so much in the last right. two or three years. Uh, so many magazines that I worked for, uh, my work appeared in like Mad Magazine, Barron's, Harvard Business Review, and the list goes on. I, wow. I worked for all these different places that no longer run cartoons, 
no longer are around. So this newsletter lets people see some of the cartoons that I'm doing mm-hmm. and gives me a chance also to promote myself. I'll mention like my book, it came out. Maybe if you like my work, you buy it or just make them laugh and share pictures of me getting chased by a bear or something. Right. So the newsletter really is going to, we all know it's going to turn into a survey someday. Of, so what do you think of me? Before I kick the bucket, it's like the last survey. Please. Right. Right. No, that's it. And that's a, I mean, again, I think, and, and, you know, I'm sure you were, it sounds like you were a very good brother and I understand the validation, like you said, and aspects like that. Um, but what I was going to say real quick with the, with the newsletter stuff, and just like you said, you walk in and, and now a stamp, you need to have a survey for that. You seem to have this very type of observational sense of humor, like looking at the minutia of everyday life. Um, which is, you know, very Seinfeld, very Larry David. I'm absolutely on the same page like that. That's kind of, like I said, how I deal with my life and and make sense of stuff. And sometimes it's very dark humor I use. It can tend to be self-deprecating if you want to just comment really quick on that. But that's what I pick up with you. A lot of your cartoons are just those really like kind of minutia, like looking at those little things and just putting a little spin to it, creating, as you would say, I read this about you, you know, cartoons also have tension and timing just like a comic which I thought was so interesting like I never thought of it from that perspective um so yeah if you just want to comment on that real quick I just think that's really interesting no I I welcome that chance I mean I just want to chime in that I do a lot of interviews but the questions are always the same it's always um where do you get your ideas right and and things like that and there are stock answers, and so I'm so glad that we're getting off the beaten tra- uh, trail here because I enjoy breaking it down, as you say, and that's how I can become a better cartoonist is when I do feel like I understand the structure and why things work. Um, as far as observational humor, I'm trying to get away from that because uh. everyone is doing it. There's so many people now. There's so many. There's so many people now who want to be a stand-up and a comedian, and that's the path to go. Uh, I know why this is, having gone to about a dozen communions and bar mitzvahs in the last 10 years, right. and watching a niece or nephew pick up the microphone like a seasoned Jim Gaffigan and do crowd work with the expertise of, of a comedian who's been on the tour. Everyone is being told, you could do anything. I mean, at these events, at these occasions, these mm-hmm. kids are saying, are being told, you could do anything. You're great. So they're encouraged that they're very funny. They could go professional. And, and, and so there's so many. There's a glut. And the friends of mine who are stand-up comedians will, will tell me the hundreds of people now who want to be stand-up compared to what it was 10 years ago. So when I do humor... I really am trying to do something that's a little bit more bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been always easy to get it onto uh, in the market. For instance, I had a cartoon that I really liked that the cartoon editor, Bob Mankoff at the New Yorker, wouldn't even consider. He, he just thought that there was nothing to it. But I had done a drawing. Of, it's my most of a man climbing up a hill to see a guru the famous like cliche 
of a guru at the top mm-hmm. of the mountain in front of a cave with his legs crossed Indian style. Mm-hmm. But for a head, the guy climbing up the hill has a Rubik's Cube, and it's all scrambled. I saw it. It's, a, it's, it's phenomenal. Right. Yeah, oh, thank you. And, and the guru has a solved Rubik's Cube. Right. So now without a caption, <laughs> there's something being said there. It's this kind of a, a feeling of bigger than something than making a joke about um, working from home again, which we've all seen. So I'm trying to do things that are just more refreshing, something that would be a cartoon that you'd say, I never thought of that. You know, yeah, so, so with that one, for example, and I apologize, I didn't mean to at, at any at any point say that, you know, all you do is observational humor. Um, you know what I mean? I'm sure you understand that. I just, I love the style that I, you have. And so you can elaborate on different structures of humor that I might not be familiar with. So with something like that, why was that not accepted? I mean, I saw that and I got it right away. I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's amazing. Is it a different level of thought processes or cognitions that someone needs to have? And maybe that was perceived as being too challenging for a, a general audience to capture. Oh, I'm not sure. And, and what you said earlier, in no way was I taking it as an yeah. insult. I, I, I feel like this is, um, I enjoy seeing what's in my head. I'm trying to unfold the thought process of what I go go for the goals doing a cartoon that is just high concept and is at the same time funny and not preachy is not easy i wish i could do it every day and so i do like everyone else we all do observational humor as it happens and a lot of times it's just something you overhear you overhear something and you mishear it it's like a misunderstanding right Um, i'm going to share one example of that and I promised you that I would name drop. It's like one of the terrible things I do. And I know you don't like it, but I, I'm going to name drop here. I was... Um, oh, uh, that's fine. Becoming... I, I, I have no problem yeah. with you name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was becoming friends with Terry Gross. And early on in our friendship, I remember an exchange in which I told her that I appreciate the time she was spending with me because I, I know how, how busy she is. But autocorrect, it changed it on the email. It said, I appreciate how busty you are. <laughs> and that's an example of overhearing something. You could turn it into a cartoon caption. It's light. It's, it's glib with stuff. Right. Now, why? You initially asked, why did the ever cartoon, the Rubik's Cube, didn't get accepted? This is one of the most frustrating things that I um, – I mean, it's minutia thing. This is really not a problem, but it is a tiny little pebble in my shoe in that my favorite cartoons that I like the most are the cartoons that don't get published and no one sees. Put on Facebook a lot of cartoons that are not very good. And the reason why they're not very good is because the very good ones I'm saving in hopes that one day somebody will buy them. But I can't put them on Facebook and, and, and then try to sell them. So as a result, Interesting. on Facebook, so on the result you get on Facebook, my, my B work and my C work, whereas the cartoons that I feel like, wow, this is as good as I can be. I, I kind of, this is my high mark. And those are the cartoons that it, it kind of breaks my heart 
that no one gets a chance to see them. And as far as the Rubik's Cube cartoon, that, that got out. So it was sold to a small little magazine, and then it circulated. It, got, it was put on Facebook and stuff, and it, it got 800,000 likes. Wow. Shared over a million times. It's not popular in our country. In our country, it's not known. But it's very popular in Asia and in Brazil and in South America. That cartoon is pretty well known. And wow. It's been everywhere. That's so well, I'm glad go. that it was. I'm glad it got out there because it's phenomenal. And oh, really quick, just to just to digress, if we're seeing your B and C work, I I can't imagine what the what the A plus work is because the stuff you post again, I maybe it's because I'm a novice or I'm not you know like in depth in the cartoon world as an actual cartoonist, but I appreciate humor and and the the cartoon aspect and. I don't know. I mean, I think this stuff is top-notch, so... It would be really funny if I just made that up, and there are no A-works, and I've been putting up my best work. If I just said that to make myself sound funny, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you're just, you're taking a leap of faith here that there are really cartoons somewhere that no one else has seen. Now, it is true. I have a folder. I have a folder on my computer that says A+, and then there's a folder that says a minus, and then there's B, and then there's C, and then there's a D folder. Okay. And I really do have cartoons placed in those folders. And then, like, you know, the D folder goes to Cat Fancy Magazine, Apathy Weekly, magazines that don't deserve <laughs> work. Right. And then, and according to your status, you get you get a, to dip into the folder. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, but I, I understand what you're saying, too, in terms of how do you have to approach stuff in that type of the, the, the type of world that you're in where you're pitching this stuff. Um, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so quickly, so let's get into, okay, so just so we can kind of do a little timeline here, and we've been, which is fine, kind of taking some bends and some turns. Um, you go through high school, and like you said, you weren't really sure, or maybe you were by the time you were done with high school, that you wanted to focus on art. Tell us a little bit about, like you said, senior year. So, Did you get your GED? Because um, you said you didn't graduate, and I know that you have spoken about in other stuff I've read. You were already going to art classes, I think, at a college level. So tell us a little bit about that, and then go into Pratt Institute, and we can get up to speed with um, some of your more recent work. Yeah, sure. Um, when I was in high school, I was really drawn to New York City, but I was going to high school in Long Island, and it just didn't hold any interest for me. I was, I took AP classes. I took my regents as a sophomore and as a junior, so I got that. Re- the requirements were under my belt. Okay. I really didn't back then. It's not allowed now. You really cannot sort of just disappear for a year in high school. There's no way. But I was able to do it then. My mother worked at the records department. She was one of the administrators. And uh, I think she helped me facilitate the fact that I really wanted to go to college. And I got scholarships to different places, and I wanted to know which one I wanted to go to. So I actually mm-hmm. sat in the classes. A, a girlfriend explained that you could go. She was going to Columbia very intelligent girl. She started sitting in on Columbia classes. She said, no one's taking attendance. They don't know I'm there. 
So I started sitting in my own classes at Pratt Institute. <laughs> and I fell in love with the school. I went back wow. to the instructor and I said, I got to tell you, uh, I don't belong in your class. Can you write me a letter of recommendation for the exam so I can do the application and it'll help me get into the school? They did that and I got to be in his class later as a legitimate student. Oh, that's amazing. So I that's had fun amazing. there. And, and my, my time at Pratt was nice. Uh, I One little hitch, which is interesting to my career, is that I did have an enemy. Everyone has a nemesis in school, mm-hmm. and that person usually motivates and pushes them. Um, th- this person had their work always compared to my work. Our work was always kind of competing. I was a little bit of a teacher's pet. Teachers liked my work. And there's always a little bit of like, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is what you're not supposed to do. So this divided, this created a wedge between us and our mutual friends. And um, when I graduated Pratt, the faculty asked me to to join them. I I wound up teaching right Mm -hmm. after I graduated. I taught there, which is a little awkward too, because I had um, had some students who were just the year before my classmates. So that was a little strange. But um, let's go speeding ahead. Twelve years later, I was at a funeral, um, and this friend of mine was a Pratt alumni. It was a classmate of mine from twelve years ago, and by pure chance, sitting next to me was my nemesis. Oh, gosh. Sitting next to me. And we talked. And this time we got along a lot better. Uh, the parents of the student who passed away came to us and asked us if we can help them do a memorial art show and on behalf of their daughter. And we worked on that together. And I got to know my enemy a little bit better. And uh, I kind of felt like, uh, well, this might as well happen. When we started mm-hmm. dating and we quickly eloped to Iceland. Oh, so this was, and, okay, uh, so, no, that's so, that's so funny because I remember I was going to ask you about that, right, that you had met your quote-unquote future wife 12 years prior. I didn't know that that's who you were talking about. So, okay, continue. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and she, and she was a really big change in my career. I was not working hard. I was not moving forward. I was a writer for different places like Spy Magazine, National Lampoon, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But she really changed my mindset to think bigger and to think like the larger picture of things. You could do a book. You could be an expert on things. You could do all these different things. And she was just – she has been, you know, my North Star. She's been everything – changed everything for me. Ah. And now here we are um, sleeping with the enemy for 20 years and we're getting along better. We got along a lot better than we first met. And it's also a kind of funny lesson because in the past couple of years, people are talking about these big divisions and how no one can get along in the country. Yeah, there's really, it seems unmanageable. I mean, to think that you, we all ever get to along again. And here I am. I married my enemy. So right. there's a lesson there. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's such an interesting story. So your wife, is she also, I'm assuming she's involved in some aspect of art illustration. Just just give a sentence she or is. two on what she does. 
Yeah, she's amazing. She's a book artist, which is like sort of this niche type of art in which you Mm -hmm. take objects and you turn them into books that are one of a kind. So instead of imagining doing a a large run of books, she does one edition of a book that's made of things. And in her case, she makes them out of like, let's say, corsets, uh, like women's corsets, because the subject matter is um, women's rights and feminism and different things in women's history and the different things that that actually have something to do with corsets. And then she also does a series with beds, little beds, and the sheets and the blankets all have stitched on them the words, the stories that took place in a bed. And oh, there are wow. historical moments, and it's really fascinating. And her work can be found on tomorrowstone.com. Actually, okay. tomorrowstoneart.com is her new website, and that's spelled T-A-M-A-R-S-T-O-N-E-Art.com. It's spelled the way it sounds, and I'm sure people will enjoy seeing that type of work. It's very unusual. Yeah, I would love to check that out. I'll have to definitely look into that. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, oh, thank you. Okay, so... So I guess this is this is a good parallel to say, right, she was the one who, like you said, made you a little more, I don't want to say flexible in your thinking, but opened you up to considering all these different avenues and aspects that you could take your talents and start to, you know, do different things. with. So let's just briefly touch on the history of the snowman, um, because that's just to me fascinating. Again, it's this this concept of you taking this idea that probably no one's really ever thought of and going down that rabbit hole to figure out, you know, who, who decided to take snow and roll it into balls and stack it on top of each right. other. And, you know. Exactly. And it began with, um, as you know, Batman, <laughs> uh, Batman, when it came out, was directed by Tim Burton, starring mm-hmm. um, Michael Keaton. And there was a lot of outrage when that came out. What, Michael Keaton, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, and then the movie came out. It was this dark interpretation of a campy TV show, and it turned it on its head. And that's what gave me the idea to take an everyday object that's innocent and pure and see if there was a dark history behind it and turn it on its head. Okay. I also wanted. I also figured I went to a bookstore, and I spent quite some time thinking about what is it that I want here that's not here? What, what, what is, I want something that's not here. What would that be? How would I be interested? And I, and I love mysteries. I love Sherlock Holmes. But mm-hmm. I'm not interested in crime. I don't want to do something about murder. But what about a bigger question? And I, I've used this cliche um, when I told the story before, but it's true that I, I try to think of a life question, like who told the first joke or, or who made the first sandwich? Mm-hmm. I, and then I said, well, you know, there's no books here that are non-denominational for Christmas. I'm Catholic. I'm an altar boy. I grew up at uh, Holy Cross in the South Bronx. But what about for people who don't celebrate Christmas? It didn't seem like there was much. There were like cookbooks, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, the snowman is something that's not religious, and I hit the jackpot when I first started researching this subject, a subject that no one really researched before because I found out that there was a back story that included some sex and violence. And it was like I found a winning lottery ticket. It all took place in like the dark ages 
I mean, there's really amazing stories about the snowman that no one knew. And I just dove into this. I collected a dream team of experts, experts being professors in cultural history, art historians from major institutions, the heads of libraries in, in Europe. And I collected all the top people, inclu- including an archaeologist, Nigel Spivy, who um, is one of the most famous archaeologists and theorists, and we discussed the probability of cavemen making snowmen. So I really went all in on this, spent a fortune, traveled the world for seven years wow. I researched this, and I spared no expense or effort. This was my obsession to find out who made the first snowman. <laughs> wow. That is fascinating. And I don't want to give too much away because I want people to, and, and personally, I'm, I want to check it out too. Um, it sounds really interesting, and, and I'm all about oh, that thanks. type of stuff too. Like how did, you know, you could give, if you want to give a couple of highlights of it, that would be great. Um, yeah, Sure. But I can also and, um, respect if you want people to also, you know, go out and no, no. buy this if they're interested. No, no, I'd be happy to. Um, there's um, um, there's a script that's already been written. We're trying to um, make a movie. So oh, okay. um, it's being discussed. Uh, as far as the book goes, there's, there's so many great stories. There's the Miracle of 1511, which talks about in Brussels. There was hundreds of snowmen being made. That was their Woodstock, where everyone just got sexually free and stuff, and it was depicted in these sexually graphic, pornographic snow scenes. And it was also an early form of political commentary at a time when people couldn't really read or write. This is really when rich people wow. had reading glasses and books, but really there wasn't much. Right. Um, so um, this was a chance for people to express themselves because for the first time, uh, free art supplies were dropped on their doorstep from the sky. And anybody could go out for the first time and have a voice. And it was like very much like Woodstock. And this was a tradition at that time to have um, these snow festivals and people doing the stuff and done by famous artists. Michelangelo made snowmen. Uh, Famous people have made snowmen. Larkin Mead made a famous snowman. So this was not kids' play. This was only after Frosty the Snowman kind of ruined everything of this being really (laughs) one of the oldest forms of folk art known to man. It's one of the few things we probably did with our ancestors. And so there's that. And I'll mention there's the massacre of 1690, which is one of the bloodiest events in early American history, um, and it involves snowmen. And um, that's a really a horrible story and a horrible way to begin um, American snowman history. The very first snowman, I'll, I'll leave that for people who, who don't yeah, want it yeah, spoiled. But there's even more amazing stories. So there's, I mean, this was like, oh, my God. This is amazing. No one has written about this. And I was able to use my artistic skills to make it the most beautiful, lush book possible and sparing no expense, purchasing photographs and creating a a very visual, really, really lush experience. Yeah, 
I mean, that's, and that's, that's what I think is a perfect um, transition into what we're going to talk about next. Cause it was this book and I want to use the word in a way kind of magical um, that introduced you because of all the appearances you were doing 80 appearance over 80 appearances, you know, promoting this book on so many different forums that got you to meet the world of the New Yorker. And I think that's, you know, it's just yeah. such an interesting transition. It wasn't, to, go ahead. It wasn't on my radar. It was something that was an accident. Everything's been an accident. So, right. You know, the story about my wife is insane. And then the <laughs> snowman was just by chance. And then what happened was is I wanted an intermission in the book. So I, I wanted cartoons to be in the middle of the book about snowmen. And I went to the New Yorker. I was not a cartoonist at that time. Mm-hmm. And they were very grateful. And they took me out to the lunch. They have like those famous weekly lunches where all the different cartoonists get together. And there was a gay ham Wilson, um, Leo Collum. But some people all know those names who are fans of the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, I had a great time. It was, you know, that fancy lunch. And I got a chance to meet all these funny people. And they showed me their cartoons. And uh, it was actually Sam Gross who took me to the lunch and treated me because it was my birthday. And we had become friends because I had purchased a couple of his cartoons for the Snowman book. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's an amazing cartoonist. He did the Frog Legs cartoon that's famous in the National Lampoon. And I asked him after the lunch, I said, uh, can I come back? I know, can I come back another time and stuff? And he goes, sure. <laughs> goes, but he goes, I'll dare you. I dare you to come back. Uh, come back. But come back with 10 cartoons. Come back with 10 sketches. So um, I couldn't. I wasn't able to come up with 10 ideas. I realized how hard it was. It, right. it took me uh, th- like three weeks to come up with the 10 cartoons. I couldn't come back the next week. And I showed up and Sam introduced me to Bob Mankoff. Mm-hmm. And Bob Mankoff uh, bought the, the first cartoon that I drew, the first attempt that I had. And, and, well, uh, and just real quick, what was that? This cartoon my- was a cartoon that I wrote with my writing partner, uh, Len Belzer. And Len Belzer and me came up with this idea of Hecklers on Poetry Night. We were doing some readings, and we would heckle each other. And then this cartoon called Hecklers on Poetry Night, the poor poet is being screamed at, saying things <laughs> like, uh, you call that a metaphor? Which is, <laughs> which is something, I, you know, we used to do to each other. As a matter of fact, I remember he had this, uh, he was very nervous about doing this, um, this reading at this one place where a crowd and so I made him feel comfortable by screaming, it's always about you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was one of the first cartoons we did together. It's right. not my joke. It is not my joke. The joke is from his brother. His brother is Richard Belzer. Uh, Richard Belzer from um, Law and Order. Okay. And, uh, and, and uh, Richard Belzer was visiting a friend in the hospital. And he was going with uh, Robin Williams. Robin Williams walks in and he sees all these balloons and cards. And the guy is like in a body cast. And Robin goes, uh, it's always about you, isn't it? <laughs> and I made it into a cartoon. And, uh, and me and Len, uh, we worked together. So I knew his brother. And through, through him, he was the host of the 
NPR comedy show. It was through him that I met a lot of comedians and a lot of people who are very talented. And, um, and then I met them afterwards when Len passed away. Len committed suicide, which was oh, you know, just terrible for me. Mm. And uh, I did the eulogy at the Friday Club. I remember it because uh, for one reason, I, the front row was uh, Gilbert Gottfried, Robert Klein, and all this. It was a two in comedy, and I'm there, and uh, I finished, and I was spent. Just you know, sure. it's a very emotional thing to talking about it. Now I remember Robert Klein coming over to me and saying, "You killed." <laughs> that I I, I I made the crowd laugh. I, I right. had enough right. jokes and stuff to, to lighten the, the mood. And again, it all comes back again to that. And it's been something that's a theme. Uh, so many of my friends, uh, most of my friends have passed away. And a lot of people died very young. And I uh, seem to have done a lot of eulogies. And I feel like it's my responsibility to do that, to, to sort of lighten the mood and try to get help us all get past it. And mm-hmm. I do it with my family. The family's had a lot of uh, passings uh, recently, and I felt like that in the pandemic. I really felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. I did something that my role is to find a way of being a distraction and seeing how we can make this, you know, passable. Right, and I'm sorry to hear, like you said, about all the, the losses that you've experienced with your family and even your friends. and. To, like you said, use this medium as a way to be a presence for them and support and using humor mm-hmm. to lighten the mood. You know, that's, that's, that's an amazing thing that you can do and that you can offer. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The last few years have just been for everybody sort of a shit show, isn't it? It's challenging. It's- oh, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it really... I don't know, sometimes it makes you really hopefully take a step back and start to appreciate the little things. And I I think this would be a good transition with um, talking just briefly. I just want to at least mention, and then we'll get into the cartoon book and um, the element of stress. You know, the footnotes um, from the world's greatest bookstores, which again, Bob, we have to do a separate interview to talk about your illustrations because they're just outstanding. And I'd love to delve into that. But let's maybe consider doing that another time and talking more about the specific artwork. But I think that really captures something that hopefully you can touch base upon, which is just things that are closing. And a big thing for you especially is, is bookstores. Um, And I think that's a real shame that, you know, everything's going online, whether it's, you know, the past 10 years, whether it's music and books and, and even, you know, at this point, look at, you got Netflix and you got all these other mediums. I mean, even the TV world, so to speak, and film world is changing dramatically. And I think it's sad. I, I kind of like that old school stuff of, you know, going into a bookstore or going into a store to pick up a CD or even some of my favorite clothing stores. They're all closing. Um, oh, comment absolutely. Comment on the purpose of this book and, and also your passion of speaking about people going to bookstores. Absolutely. To keep them, to keep to keep them keep driving. I don't want to sound preachy and I don't want to go on too long. And I know we have already gone past our session and there's another patient waiting outside. Of, in the <laughs> no, room. no, 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 you're, I, you're, I, I've, I've allotted at least two hours for you. Um, so continue. I, <laughs> yeah. I, the bookstores was not a passion of mine. 
initially I just was doing a job for a magazine, The New Yorker, okay. uh, illustrating some, some bookstores. And then uh, when it got published, uh, hours later, it, when it came out, the same day, hours later, I was offered book deals to do it as a book. And wow. then I dove into the project, and then everything changed. All of a sudden, I was emotionally invested when I met the people who owned the stores. I didn't mm-hmm. know much about bookstores until then. Once I started meeting and hearing the stories, it was heartbreaking. And the more I got into it, the more passionate I got, and the more like I was doing op-eds and doing speaking engagements on behalf of bookstores. When I did book events, I would talk about the owner and stuff because I – and learn their struggles and the challenges. And this really is crazy. I'll sum it up really quickly with one memorable moment was when I got an apology, an email from a bookstore telling me why they didn't get back to me sooner regarding being in the book. They said, okay. sorry, it's been you know, a terrible month. We closed or we went bankrupt. And that was oh, a common gosh. thing. But I was learning of their bankruptcies as I was doing the book. But the book also wow. was um, a sort of a love letter to people who helped me. I made a list of all the people who influenced me, who I was a fan of. And there would be people, um, I don't know, Bob Olden, Kurt was on the list, Mark Marin, Michael Maslin, uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python, who, who I know. And wow. uh, Tom Hanks and Paul McCartney and David Bowie, everyone who I really loved stuff growing up and was a part of my career and creative process. And they were all invited to be in the book and give a story of how books and bookstores changed their life to illustrate how a bookstore is usually the intellectual hub of any main street. It's where people get influenced and they, they could change their whole life and they could learn a new craft or a new trade or new religion or something. It's really life-changing a bookstore in a way that Amazon cannot be. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, if you, then you could take it from the other side. A bookstore is a shelves and shelves of people's dreams, people who have spent years writing something that's their whole life, and they're just getting a two-inch spine space on the shelf, sharing mm-hmm. with all these other people with dreams. And that's more, you could say, than a hardware store or um, another place of business and that's why bookstores are so special. And, and yeah, that's no, my, thank I, you for... I'll end it there. I, I feel like I'll sum it up that way. I feel like I kind of did a nice job. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think you did a nice job too, just so people can hopefully, you know, check that book out. Because, again, another book that just sounds fascinating. And as you said, it's kind of you stumbling upon accidentally sometimes, you know, learning about something that you become passionate about that you never knew you yeah. might have an interest in. Um, exactly. and I think that's something that I, that I love about life and stuff. And just, you know, like I said, if I'd love to speak with you off the air, I think we have a lot in common with just this idea of this kind of accidentally finding things that you become passionate about or that you get an interest in that you never thought you would have. Um, yep. and I think that's a message hopefully people can take home is try stuff out. You just never know what you might learn to love. You know, don't say, oh, I can't do this. I mean, actually try something out and see if it's something that would develop into something more. So, so yeah, cool. We all could thank our parents for all the different things they asked us to try. Violin lessons, me going to art camp one summer, 
and all the different things that they were pushing us to try. Many of them didn't stick, like swimming lessons, but other things <laughs> you don't know. Right. Right. And even as, again, just to really quick and just to put this, this bullet point in and then let's get into the cartoon books and um, the, the elements of stress um, is, you know, you didn't start. I mean, you were doing stuff for a long time with your illustrations and writing, but it wasn't until you were what, about 45 that you sold your first cartoon or got into this, this concept of gag cartoons, which I had to look up and I was fascinated to learn, you know, it's this kind of one panel cartoon where there may or may not be some type of a description with it. Right. I was not into it myself. I had to learn. It was, again, just that lunch that did it. It was just pure accident. And that guy, Sam, saying, well, I dare you to do it. I had no right. intention of doing cartoons. Um, I had done, when I, I do remember many, many years before that, I entered like the second or first caption cartoon contest in the New Yorker. My roommate dared me to try it. He thought I was could come up with something. And I came up as runner-up. And I never gave him another thought after that. Mm-hmm. Never thought that I'd ever read the, the New Yorker. or Because I, was a, I became a columnist for different places. Right. I was writing columns for Newsday, for Village Voice. I was writing for a lot of magazines, humor. I was illustrating. I was doing design. I was doing corporate logos, which I really enjoy doing. And and everything and teaching. And I was teaching at School of Visual Arts and Pratt Institute and all these places. So I had a full plate. Once I sold a cartoon at the New Yorker, ay yay. <laughs> I got on a, a ride that I never got off. That right. I was it's been one that it I I love it. I love cartoons, but it is not like other work, it's all speculative. I didn't realize at the time how hard it would be to sell the second cartoon. I assumed that everybody who was in the room and showing their cartoons sold cartoons and that maybe I did the worst because I sold one and I assumed that everyone else sold multiple cartoons. I didn't know it was so hard. And then I found out that it was impossible. It's really hard. <laughs> right. And then, you know, that's really even more impossible to make a living from it. But after I did the, the bookstore book, I was very grateful to the bookstores. And I wanted to give them a thank you. So I decided I was going to do a collection of cartoons about mm-hmm. bookstores and books. And that's the first book of the series. The other books that came out was because of the, uh, the popularity of the first book. And this is by Princeton Architectural Press, which I'm very um, indebted to and grateful to. They were wonderful to work with. And it was a labor of love. Not, none of us are getting rich from it. They love books. I love books. And we wanted to showcase the people who I learned to love, cartoonists like George Booth and Sam Gross is in the book yep. all over. And all these people who I love, their cartoons, I wanted to have them in the book. So I knew these people. Uh, there's not a lot of young people because I didn't know a lot of the young people. It's not like the magazine where I'm, I'm – it's not an open call for edition. This is more um, a tribute to people who are great cartoonists, and this is to give them a little bit of a showcase, many of who no longer appear in the magazine, and, and a lot of people miss. So it was a good chance for people to see more work by people who were once um, favorites. And that yeah, led to no. two other books. 
It's a great, no, I, I mean, it's a, it was a great idea, like you said, from the first one you started, which of course, so people can know, it's called the ultimate cartoon book of book cartoons. Um, as you said, just having these, these infamous people in there. Um, and then the next one, that you did, which you'll mention is everyone's a critic, which I thought, again, what a great topic in terms of how everyone thinks that they know everything and, you know, critiquing everything. That looks hilarious. That is a hilarious <laughs> I've seen some of that stuff. Everyone now thinks that they're a critic. I know. That That's really such hilarious a hilarious. Yeah. How did you just real quick, uh, again, a, a one liner or a bullet, how did you come up with that idea for everyone's a critic to capture the concept of this ultimate cartoon book? Oh my God. It's just a natural. It, it, was, it came out like two years ago at at the point in which, you know, every little kid's even giving me like uh, five stars or one star. Everyone thinks that Gene Siskel. It's it's just amazing how we're in a culture now that everybody has to be so judgmental. And right. so it was just ripe for the subject. I just I just felt like everybody needed to get a laugh about that. That's and then great. the last book. The last book is about love and marriage, and the story with that was the CEO of one of the CEOs of Princeton said to me that he loves the books. They came out so nice. Thanks so much that they're so loved and stuff. And now I have a friend going through a divorce, and I'd like you to help him. Let's do a book about divorce to cheer him up. And I said, <laughs> okay. Wow, that's. That's something I said, I got to tell you, though, I don't think we can do it because it's just too much negativity. What if we did a book about divorce and dating and marriage? So let's make it a little about love in general. So we'll have divorce, but let's have some, some other sides of it, too. And let's make it also um, uh, gay relationships. Let's have um, all different sorts of, of love so people feel it's all inclusive and not mm-hmm. just people going through a, a really nasty divorce. <laughs> right. Um, so, so he said that would be great. And we came out with a book that I think is a really nice idea for people who are getting married or something. And I've actually been giving it as a wedding present for people. Um, <laughs> I, I like to say my, pre, my presence, uh, giving my book as a present is great for the person who doesn't deserve a really expensive gift. We all are those people who kind of didn't earn a really great gift. They deserve a gift in that price range that my books fall into. And it still looks like a lovely gift, but they don't know the better. Because I did make all my books as affordable as possible. I, I do not like it when books are expensive and it excludes people from affording it. That uh, mm-hmm. real pet peeve of mine. Yeah, no, I mean, what a, what a, again, what a, what a brilliant and funny idea um, with all fair love and warm. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. I mean, I loved it. And just a couple of highlights. I'm going to talk about some of your cartoons when we get to the elements of stress. But, um, you know, I just wanted to, there was two, again, there was tons that I loved, but I love Sam Gross's one with the snails. And it's them saying, one of them saying, I don't care if she's a tape dispenser, I love her. Um, it's yeah. just, just classic and just, you know, everyone in there is a, is a laugh out loud, funny cartoon. I have to say that. But the one, too, that I had found, um, I think I saw it online before you had sent me the book, and I just started literally dying laughing was they're driving away after they just got married. And, you know, usually it says just married on the back of the car. <laughs> and this one says just made a huge mistake. And it was just so, again, <laughs> classic. And just, again, I just 
I don't know. I, I mean, again, I do have a dark sense of humor. So, um, but like oh, you said, it's made. That, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say I contend that that book is a great primer for getting married. All the lessons about marriage can be learned in that book for through yes. a cartoon, which is much more fun than dry chapters by a doctor. <laughs> right. Definitely. So, yeah, everyone check out this book, too. Check out all of his cartoon books, his snowman book, and also the footnotes um, from the bookstores. But let's also touch base on the elements of stress, which, again, I have heard of the elements of style. I actually did look at it and, and peruse it a little bit because I wanted to, I haven't really, you know, dove into it, but I have ideas that I would love to eventually explore with writing and things like that. So at least I was familiar um, when I started to read how it was a parody and I was like, okay, that makes sense. I could see elements of stress, elements of style. So tell us a little bit about your relationship, how you met Michael Shaw, who is another phenomenal cartoonist that you co-wrote this book with and just a little about the premise of the book. Um, and then I'll share some of my, my favorite cartoons um, that you did in the book. And maybe at some point I'll have to reach out to Michael Shaw and he can also come on to uh, promote it and for an interview. Oh, he would love to come on and he'll okay. be on parole. He'll be, he'll be coming out of prison by 2026, I believe. <laughs> so no, I'm only joking. Michael is someone who I met as a fan. I was a fan of his work. And I think that we developed a friendship we were both in the same business of cartooning and stuff, but I did and I still do consider him um, someone who inspires me and he's above me. I, I really love his work. And uh, he did mention we should try to collaborate on something. He had different ideas. I had different ideas of what we could do, um, a very useful idea to do something about stress to kind of like give people tips and stuff. So we took a little bit of a road to get to that point. Uh, and we're both fans of the authors of Elements of Style. There's a, his, there's a connection there to the New Yorker. Carrie, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you there. Okay. We just had a little bleep. I oh, think okay, that okay. I just okay. got hit by lightning. <laughs> oh, no, hopefully not. That's okay. okay, continue. Another yep. assassination attempt. Uh, Michael and I... Uh, so we decided to do this book that we thought would be a great break in the, in the whole pandemic craze and all this panic and stuff and relieve some anxiety. And we were, we were informed that there were like people who said that the book really helped them get through their time in the hospital and stuff. And they really enjoyed it. But I should mention, we are not doctors and we are cartoonists. <laughs> and even though our advice in my opinion is really good, uh, we are not doctors, and right. um, it's mostly cartoons. There's 75 of our cartoons in the book, and it's really small and light, so it's a breezy read. It's like just really a, a brief uh, history of stress, and and it's like $10 is what we're asking for because we wanted everyone to see it and everyone to enjoy it, and uh, it was fun to do. No, it's, it's, it's great. And again, like you said, everyone can relate to everything that's in the book, like you said, with regards to stress. I mean, it's, it's, again, a very nice universal book that's covering comedy and stress management, as you said, not being doctors, but just people would be able to appreciate the, the content of the book. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of the ones, again, that I was just really dying when I saw laughing was I love the clown. 
who's, you know, basically on the stand with the judge and he's yelling out that he doesn't, you know, if he has to explain this joke, it's really not funny. It's hysterical. <laughs> um, again, being a psychologist, I do a lot of research. I really enjoyed the histogram and the graph of the jobs with increasing levels of stress with the clown being the most stressful and the poet on the steadily <laughs> stressful end. Again, just, just brilliant. Um, prescription antidepressant ice cream was great. So, again, those are just a couple. I don't want to give too many away, but people would really appreciate those were some of your jokes. And, again, Michael did a great job, too. And, like I said, I will definitely consider reaching out to him, and then I can uh, plug some of his jokes, too. Um, oh, that would be great. So, and I do – you did remind me that I, I made an omission earlier when you okay. asked if my family has any – background at all in comedy or entertainment and i do remember now that my brother when he was like in college took a part-time job job as a as a clown <laughs> okay it it ended tragically when he got beat up at a burger king in a birthday party in brooklyn oh gosh yeah so i mean i'm just trying to I'm trying to um, explain where the statistics to that graph came from. I do know where I come from when I say clowns are, have a very stressful job. Definitely. Most performances end, I believe, being beat up. Really? That's, that's, well, again, maybe I'll give you some ideas. That's an interesting thing to delve into. Here's sure, I don't know. Is there a book on the first clown? Is there a book on the, unfortunately, all the distressful and, you know, people think of clowns and for the most part, you usually think entertaining and funny, but some people are also very scared of them. You know, they can, for some people, I remember (laughs) the Seinfeld episodes, there was a few Seinfeld episodes with clowns and Kramer was petrified of them. (laughs) I just did a clown cartoon. You'll be the first person to hear this. Okay. I haven't shown it to anyone. It's backstage in the circus, and a clown has a pie in his hand. And two mobsters are coming over to him and whispering, make it look like an accident. <laughs> That's brilliant. I actually think that joke is pretty good. Now, it now is. I said it out loud. All right. We'll see, how it, we'll see what happens to it. So why don't we do this? Let's... um. Again, let's let's tie up a little bit. Uh, please plug also, and then of course we'll plug your books at the end and where people can find you. You know, share with us a little bit also about how you and Michael Shaw are. You know, you, you recently launched a, a podcast called the Cartoon Pad, which is again really cute idea, really brilliant idea to capture people in that world and what they're doing. So yeah, tell us a little bit about how you guys came up with this, why you wanted to do it, um, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Oh, great. Uh, well, Michael and I were approached to do a show. It's really not my intention to do a podcast. I just felt like it was out of my skill set. But um, this place called Weekly Humorous, which is sort of like an entertainment arm who does mm-hmm. and they do comedy shows. They do a lot of great stuff. And they're very supportive of me and Michael. Published the book, The Elements of Stress, and got behind it. And we got a lot of love from them. Said it's time for you guys to do a podcast. And 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 Marty, who is my um, my publisher there, and he's the producer of the show. He's got it all set up. He knows his way around the studio. We got we even have sponsors. People who are interested in in doing ads for the show. We have a theme song 
by a really well-known band. Everything is top shelf except for the host, me. <laughs> Everything else is really polished. And we have had on guests who are so interesting. And again, it's just, again, it's the same thing of learning from other people, hearing their experiences and getting inspired and stuff. And so I am excited about the show now, whereas in the beginning I just thought, well, it's just another podcast. But I'm starting to think that this is really neat. Um, I do have a cartoon about podcasts, and um, someone was saying, um, podcasts are like opinions. Everyone has one. Right. And uh, it does feel like we're the last people to get a podcast, but it's called The Cartoon Pad. It's anywhere where you find podcasts. Uh, go to Carrie's show first. Go through all her episodes. She's more polished. But then oh. check us out, and uh, you'll see a lot of people who you might know. And we do it biweekly. Okay, so biweekly, and I know people sometimes have different ways of interpreting that. Every other week? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Week, okay. We, post, we post it like Friday. Okay. And um, it has been fun. I mean, I like getting deeper into the stories and hearing just the sound bites. Yeah. No, I think it's a great idea. And, and yeah, I mean, definitely I've, I'm familiar with the weekly humorist, you know, I do follow them and I do enjoy looking at the stuff that um, Marty Dundick and, and all of you guys um, post. So yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, place to go to get some yeah. com- comedy stuff and cartoons and yeah, really cool. Really cool. So why don't we do this? Let's um, have you plug where people can find your books and how people can follow you on all the social media stuff and your website. And then, of course, we will definitely keep in touch, and you're more than welcome to come back on, and we could delve into another part of your life or when you have another um, project or product that you want to promote. So the the floor is open for you. Oh, thanks. No, you've been great. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me on, and thanks to anyone who's listening. Um, to find more work, you could – you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter by just my name. And I'm going to spell my name. It's the same as my website, B-O-B, Bob Eckstein. And that's spelled E-C-K-S-T-E-I-N.com. But the same spelling is to get me book or Instagram. And um, you can actually just Google Bob Snowman Expert, world's greatest snowman expert. And you'll see all the stuff coming up that way, too. And if you, if anybody would like a book, I like to encourage people to go to bookshop.org. Bookshop.org gives proceeds, a portion of it, to independent bookstores, and it's part charity. And so I try to encourage all my books sold through that, and to help out other people. And you'll find all the different books I got there. And if you want to buy them from me, to contact me through the newsletter. I like to sign copies. I know some people want to give it a gift, and I do doodles and cartoons in the book, and I'll do that. I know for a lot of people that's a special thing to make it personalized, and I try to help Mm -hmm. out. That's great. And I can make some adjustments, if you remind me, to my posts on social media um, to put the bookshop.org, because I know from this whole interview, just like we were talking about with really honing in on these bookstores and making them, you know, do what we can to to stay open, so I'll definitely try to make a note of doing that. 
But thank you so much, Bob. It's oh my gosh, I was really looking forward to the interview, and you, you outdid yourself. And I really appreciate you coming on. Oh no, thank you. This has been really just a pleasure. And we'll, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely, we will definitely keep in touch. Thank you so much. And and just so you know, too, there will be a podcast available um, on iTunes and iHeartRadio and all the major sites, so that if people want to at some point check it out at their convenience. They can stream it, download it for free. So, so that'll be great too, to keep this, uh, keep this interview going so people can learn about you. Yeah. And Carrie, you need to send me uh, your mailing address because I want to send you books. I gotta, oh, I gotta, well, thank I you so much. You. I will, I will be in touch with you. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm oh, very much looking forward pleasure. to that. I can't, I can't wait till you read some of the books. I don't have all the books myself and I'm not going to bombard you with all the books, but I'm going to, I, I want you to, um, let's see. I'll take whatever you have. have <laughs> well, I have the bookstore book. Do you have that book? Because if you don't, let me send you that. Yes. Why don't we do this? I will reach out to you via email and we'll, we'll touch base and we can talk more about that. Yeah. I'm going to send you All the right. bookstore book and it's Elements of Stress book. Okay. Okay. I'll definitely reach Wait. out to you. Okay. Super. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bob, for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure, and um, I will look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Bob Eckstein, and uh, what an amazing interview. Please, if you did not um, catch the beginning of it or you tuned in a little late, check out the podcast. We did uh, over an hour and a half now. And um, yeah, what, what, a, what a brilliant cartoonist, illustrator, and writer. Really excited to have had the opportunity and pleasure to interview him. So check him out. Um, as he also mentioned, I have interviews with tons of different artists. I have musicians on my show, illustrators, um, authors, comedians, the list goes on. So please check him out. And as I said, my show is really a premise and a forum to support people in the entertainment industry, promote them and do a really unique, in-depth story about their life. Um, Every podcast I do is going to be different, and I appreciate Bob telling me that, you know, this is not a cookie-cutter type of interview, so I hope that you'll take the the time to listen to some of these podcasts um, when you're on your way to work or or whatever it is when you have some downtime. Please become a fan of The Carrie Edelman Show. Um, You can follow me on Facebook at The Carrie Edelman Show. I am on Instagram and Twitter, just my name, Carrie Edelman. And if you want to befriend me on Facebook, too, you can um, find me there. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, uh, feel free to like Blog Talk Radio and follow my show there. And that will give you updates as well as the social media sites of when I have some new um, guests coming on to interview. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.